I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and the host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. A workplace can become a safe space for employees in many different ways. One of them is by enabling conversations around mental wellness. Bethan Katz, program manager at Microsoft, talked about her struggle with depression and the importance of an accepting work environment. We talked about mental wellness and things that a workplace can do to be more welcoming. Bethan also talked about her initiatives to raise awareness around mental health. One of them is a podcast called Catsby Fights Depression. Before we move on to the interview, I wanted to mention that if you would like to connect with a crisis counselor in the United States, you can text HOME to 741741. Thank you. Bethan Katz, Technical Program Manager at Microsoft, is joining us today. We're here in the Sunnyvale office. Bethan, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Diana. It's my pleasure. Today we're going to be talking about various topics like working in tech, depression, and the importance of having a safe space, especially in the workplace, and some of the things that companies can do from your experience. But... First, I wanted to begin with some background about you. Since I met you in 2013, it really stood out to me how well-rounded you are and how fluent in Spanish you are (laughs) also. I was surprised by that and the various hobbies. So I wanted to begin with a quick recap of your upbringing. Yeah, sure thing. So originally, I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I did do a bunch of things growing up. I was really fortunate to have exposure to a lot of those different things. So I was competitive in figure skating, and I was in an elementary school that was bilingual, so I was taught in English and in Spanish. And I played the piano, and I played the flute in different settings and orchestras and all that kind of thing. So it definitely was a very well-rounded background, kind of jack of all trades, master of none sort of situation. And as I got older, I was planning to dedicate my life to music. I thought that's what I was going to major in full time. And as you alluded to, I got sick with depression, um, very serious at the time. And while I was going through that, I decided that I wanted to completely change course in life. It was a little bit of rejecting my past self and trying to kind of be reborn and redefine myself. And at the time I was taking a calculus class that I really, really loved. And someone suggested to me, have you thought about engineering? Hadn't at all. And that was kind of the pivotal moment that shoved me from this arts, liberal, very musical background into the engineering pathway. And next thing I knew, junior year of high school, I had decided to completely change my path and applied to engineering schools instead of prepping for the music auditions that I thought I was going to be doing. And the rest is history. Yeah. Then you went on to study at Carnegie Mellon, electrical and computer engineering, really good school. And what you're mentioning is you decided to shift away from the arts Mm -hmm. because of depression or... Yeah. I was in a pretty bad place at that point in high school. And the way that I dealt with it was thinking like, I need to completely change myself to find peace with myself and become this person that I want to be, this person that isn't in pain all the time. And part of that was rejecting every part of me that I thought had defined me up until that point in my life. 
That said, one of the beautiful things about Carnegie Mellon that drew me to it was that it was the balance between really good at engineering, which is what I thought I wanted to go into, but wasn't sure since that change had been so sudden, but also really balanced at a lot of other things. When you're auditioning in the flute world, and I thought I was going to go into flute, one of the masters of that, the person that literally wrote the book on flute auditions that get used everywhere for getting into those conservatories, she's actually a professor at Carnegie Mellon. So I was like, if I do change my mind again completely, and I do want to try to go that path, Carnegie Mellon's a great place where they're really known for engineering, and also they're really good at the flute. So I had options. I see. And what were some of the things that you enjoyed while you were in college? You mentioned you were pretty new to engineering, right? Mm -hmm. So how was your whole experience Yeah, it was really tough. So Carnegie Mellon is a fantastic school. It's offered me so much opportunity, but it was a double-edged sword. Because it was so good, especially at computer science and computer engineering, a lot of the people that get drawn to that path are children of tech moguls, people that have been programming since they were in elementary school, people that had already been paid to create startups or consulting for websites and stuff like that. It was just... Yeah, it was completely overwhelming. And for me, who had decided at the last minute to join engineering, it was very intimidating because I had had zero exposure before then. So that was really, really tough. You asked some of the things that I enjoyed. So one, it was the first time I got into leadership positions. Again, in high school, I was really shy and I was really insecure. So I just never thought I would be that person. And part of that redefining myself process was I do want to be this leader someday and here's the place to try that out. So I got involved with the Society of Women Engineers, which was an organization that I really loved being a part of and took some leadership in. And my favorite two things were being a resident assistant. And weirdly, more than any of my technical classes, what has helped me as a program manager was those conflict management skills that I learned helping college-aged girls have roommate conflicts and get adjusted to class. And that's helped me a lot with the conflict resolution management that happens as a part of deciding how architecture should be formed for technical products. And then beside that, the other one that I really liked was that I was a tour guide at Carnegie Mellon and I would show prospective students and parents the electrical and computer engineering department. And as much as I was insecure about it and felt that I didn't fit in, I actually loved that department. I made some really great friends there. I had some really great times there. Um, I'm still dating my boyfriend who I met through that department. And yesterday I was on the phone with one of my best friends who was also in that major and in that program. So those things, getting to feel that leadership experience and also just share that love of Carnegie Mellon with the new students through being a resident assistant and then with prospective students through that tour guiding, that was really incredible. I see. And you mentioned you used to be more on the shy side. Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> Me also. But <laughs> when you were like, I want to be a leader someday, did you? was it just that easy for you to like, okay, I'll just start volunteering for leadership? Like that's that's what you did? Not at all. Yeah. So parts of that insecurity always stuck with me. And that's a beast and a demon that I've kind of been fighting back even now in some ways. And so when I did get to Carnegie Mellon, I tried a little bit. I went out for a position on the Society of Women Engineers, one of the only leadership positions that could be given to freshmen. And I got rejected for that. And that was really hard. And then I actually didn't get back into leadership in that 
organization until my junior year when I finally had like built up confidence and kind of gotten over that rejection to be able to take on that kind of role. And it was the same thing for resident assistants that you can apply as early as your sophomore year. And even though I was really interested in it, I talked myself out of it where I was like, I can't be that person. I'm not going to apply for this. And I didn't. And then I built up that confidence by the end of sophomore year. And then I did get the resident assistant position for junior year. So it was definitely a process. I want to transition now to talk about working in tech and, you know, your various roles here and then other aspects of your experience. Let's begin with some of the roles that you've held working in tech. So if we start from when I was in college, I was majoring in computer engineering. I was very, very close to graduating with a minor in computer science. Um, I like to think of myself as a watered-down CS major. (laughs) And so when I was in my freshman year and my sophomore year, afterward, I actually did do dev internships, not PM. And so that was one of the caps that I wore. And even though I was pretty strong at programming in school, it just was a really bad fit for me when I was in industry. It was a little bit... Uh, not social enough, and I was getting frustrated with the problems that I was dealing with at work in terms of the work that I was doing. So I kind of figured out pretty early on that that wasn't a good fit. In addition to that, I had tried research as another potential path to go down. So I had done a co-op during my sophomore year at a research institution, and I'd also done some academic research with a professor. And again, um, interesting problems, but I found that I was kind of bored by the work, and it just wasn't the right fit for me. At that point, I had heard about PMing, where it is where you can use your technical skill, but also combine that with the social, with the giving presentations and speaking to people and creating influence. And that sounded like a way better fit, given that one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was giving tours of the university and kind of showing people like, here, I'm going to use my voice to show you what I love about this institution and convince you that it may be right for you. And here's how and why you should think about that. And so I did apply for PM internships after my junior year, and that's when I got the one at Microsoft. And since then, I've been a program manager at Microsoft for almost five years now. Yes, and what's interesting that you mentioned is whatever you were curious about, you went ahead and tried it. You were like, maybe dev, maybe research, and you got those questions answered by the time you Mm -hmm. graduated, which is good. (laughs) Now that we've talked about how you're currently a program manager I want to touch on the mental wellness and depression aspects and how you've struggled with this in the context of, you know, well, having a full-time job and everything. Can you give some context on that? Definitely. So when I think about starting a job at Microsoft and even getting through the education at Carnegie Mellon, it was all really exacerbated by having a mental illness. So again, it's been depression for me, even though there's a whole spectrum of mental illness, And it has a couple of symptoms. You're tired a lot of the time, just like exceptionally tired in some cases. And you have trouble with self-care. And you also, that insecurity and those negative emotions that I've kind of been touching on throughout my whole story, those are definitely very exaggerated. And so when you enter the world of tech, or like I said, entering Carnegie Mellon, where I'm put up against all these amazing people, a lot of people have imposter syndrome in those situations, but for me, it was it felt like it was a lot worse because in addition to just regular imposter syndrome, there was the depressive aspect of it that was this little voice whispering in my ear that you're definitely not good enough and you never will be good enough and what are you even doing here? Yeah, so really, really difficult. It felt like I had to fight super hard to say like, okay, 
wake up in the morning, fight off this fatigue that's a little bit unnatural. And then once I do that, like find the energy to get in the shower, to drive to work, to take care of myself, get into work to face a whole day of just feeling like I am the stupidest person on the planet. (laughs) And I should definitely never have been hired. And I'm so sad. And I start spiraling into these just really negative self-talks and then go home and just kind of veg out so I can hope to recuperate the energy to do it again the next day. So like you said, you were constantly fighting, but for example, you're able to give tours like at work, you're this super bubbly person. (laughs) Like that's when I um, also want to let people know that sure, you're feeling tired and everything, but you're trying to suppress it. Yeah, definitely. That was my coping mechanism. So mental health has a really bad stigma where it's hard to seek help because you're embarrassed and vulnerable. And also people often don't react really well to it and they don't empathize with it. People just mostly don't understand it. And so I had that self-talk also going on where I was like, there's nothing wrong with me. Like I am going to show the world that there's nothing wrong with me. And you learn how to hide it just brushing things off is like, oh man, I'm so tired because I stayed up all night studying, which can be true. And a lot of times it was, but sometimes it was more than that. But I would use that as an out to explain what I was going through. And I have kind of been bubbly for most of my life. So that's just something that didn't change uh, my disposition and my personality. But that said, a lot of times it was also a cover where it was like, obviously nothing's wrong if I'm super happy all the time. Um, And because I was really trying to hide this and didn't want people to find out, it was just another thing that I learned to hide behind. That said, like, it's genuine, I think, from my side. This is just the way I communicate most of the time, I feel okay and like this is natural but yeah definitely a little bit of using it to hide behind and at some point you realize that you wanted to be honest and open about these feelings Mm -hmm. to people you work with and also you know to Mm -hmm. your close people like friends and family yeah what got you to do this to be Mm -hmm. more honest and open about it yeah so basically what happened is that I was keeping it a secret to try and protect myself where I didn't want to be judged by my mental illness and I didn't want to face that stigma. And also because I kind of didn't believe it myself. I didn't give myself credit that I was actually going through something. I thought that I was just not trying hard enough. And eventually I realized that I was doing this to protect myself when in reality it was hurting me more than it was helping because I was acting in certain ways that I couldn't explain to people what was going on, things that pushed people away or things that were very negative in relationships. And I couldn't explain why I was doing it or why I felt certain ways. And when I realized that it was damaging my relationships and the quality of my life, I realized like this thing that I'm doing to protect myself is actually having the exact opposite effect. So that's when I decided to try and turn that around and say, this is who I am. And to be honest and to salvage what's going on in my life, I need to tell people what's happening and why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And that's when I decided to be open about it and face the consequences, so to say, of what might happen if I'm open about it. Can you talk about how you started bringing this up in the workplace? So what happened is that I was fighting for a really long time with the decision of whether to start medication or not. Um, Again, I was putting it off kind of because of the stigma and fear and a lot of other things. And eventually I did decide to try it. And that is the moment that I decided I needed to bring it into the workplace because I was genuinely unsure of how I might react if it would change my quality of my work, my ability to get into the office at all, my personality, if I started acting completely different, I didn't know. 
And so I went to my boss at the time, and at the end of one of our one-on-ones, I told him, I was like, I am starting antidepressants. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I wanted you to know. And it started as a necessity and a definitely business impacting thing. And when he took it really well, that's when I got inspired that maybe it's okay to be a little bit more open about this. I want to get more into, you know, how the workplace can help or support employees that are struggling with depression. Like I mentioned earlier, we both work at Microsoft. We're pretty fortunate that a lot of things that happen here set the bar for other companies. Mm -hmm. So from your experience, what have been the highlights of working on Microsoft while having depression? Definitely. So the first one is that the community has been incredibly supportive. Again, that sounds a little bit like a cliche, but it was very true in my experience that everybody I told was very positive. I didn't really hit against any of the stigma at work when I told people. So that was just really, really encouraging and something that was really great. I decided to be really open about it in a really public way. I saw a call to action where women at Microsoft was asking for personal stories and things that you faced adversity. And I reached out and I said, I have been fighting a mental illness at work. And I think it's important to me and to a lot of people to be open about it and just let people know that this happens and how I'm handling it. And so I answered that call to action and I was featured in a story at Microsoft. And after that story went live, I got dozens and dozens of emails of people sharing their own experience or thanking me to come out with this, making sure that I was okay. And even some people asking for advice, like, can you help talk to my daughter who's going through similar things at college? And that's when I saw that this was a bigger thing than me and something that talking about it, just the simple act of talking about it could have a huge impact on the community. So those are really positive things that happened at Microsoft. And then, like you mentioned, there's the Microsoft Cares program. So if you do need mental health support, they have sessions of free therapy per year, and they also help connect you to a therapist. So again, if you're depressed or experiencing mental illness, sometimes it can be difficult to call a doctor or do that legwork because it just feels really overwhelming and you feel really tired. And so to just call Microsoft and say, I need help, And they go and connect you to that therapist. They set up the first appointment for you and go and it's free. That reduces so many barriers to entry to getting help. So they make it really easy for you to get through that first step of getting help, right? Yeah. And like you said, they provided a channel for you to share your story. And Mm -hmm. this had an impact because of the size of the company. It reached a lot of people. Oh, yeah, totally. I think that's how I found out about it. (laughs) Then I reached out. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Are there other things, other ways in which you think, you know, things companies can adopt? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month. And I don't know if you've noticed around the Microsoft offices, but there's whole campaigns going on saying it's okay not to be okay. So that messaging that tells people that this is a real issue and that there's ways to get help, that's really awesome and really, really supportive. The other thing is that Microsoft has a couple distribution lists and resources for people who want peer support. So I believe one of the DLs or distribution lists is people with mental health, and then there's also family and support of people with mental health conditions, and they have a whole range of them. There's also Teams channels for these kind of things for neurodiversity at Microsoft. So we have that peer support also. So generalizing that, making sure that people are aware that 
mental illness in the workplace is an issue that should be addressed and making sure that people are aware of the resources and also having those peer support groups make things really easy or a lot easier when coping with a mental illness in the office. Throughout my time at Microsoft, another way in which I've noticed how they're taking notice of this is with what we have, which is called like the stay fit credit. Yeah. I don't mean this to sound like a marketing episode for Microsoft, (laughs) but it is a great place. And Uh like, just to explain some people, we get this stay fit credit, which we can use, you know, to pay our membership in the gym, get sports clothes. In a recent year, they started adding if you get a meditation app or meditation books. So those little things are Mm -hmm. also... Yeah, Yeah. part of the fitness stipend. I just learned that a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so I was actually intending to start doing that and reimburse, like, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention brand names on your show, but like a Headspace membership. Oh, I see. (laughs) Yeah, so that's another thing. And just to go back a little bit, when you put the story out there, you start getting a lot of messages from people. Then eventually I see you're starting, you know, a YouTube channel and putting some Mm -hmm. content out there. Can you give some context about this content you're putting out there? Definitely. So like I mentioned, it was a twofold thing where I saw depression impacting my professional life, but also personal, where it was definitely hurting a lot of relationships and I couldn't quite explain why I was acting in a way that was damaging. And a big part of being open about this was breaking down that wall, which is I do need to tell people who are close to me a little bit about what's going on. And that's when I decided to start on Facebook and on YouTube with saying, this is what's going on. I'm literally about to take my first depression pill after this video is done. And I put that up on YouTube and on my personal Facebook. So part of that was for that personal redemption and explanation part. And part of it was that same thing where I believed that getting this out would be helpful beyond myself. And that's where YouTube came in, where I was like, this is a public platform and also one place where I can share this broadly if I need to, because Facebook is restricted in certain senses. And one of the other components that I see that you have in your life is this bucket list. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the ways in which having this list has helped you? Yeah, definitely. So there's a couple of ways. The first one is that one of my symptoms of depression and one that I think got worse when I started antidepressants was emotional numbness and disconnectedness. And so it's very hard for me to feel happy or different emotions that make certain events worth it, like relationships enriching or events feel like they are really meaningful. And so part of me needs things that are very tangible to understand the impact of what's going on since I can't fully feel the effect of them. And so the bucket list was part of that. And also when I did get help in high school, it was kind of forced. It wasn't my decision to go into therapy and different things like that. For full disclosure, my family found out that I was suicidal and they are the one that put me into these help resources. So I was very bitter. I actually didn't want to be alive. I was very resentful that I got caught and had to be forced into these help resources. And it was a little bit of spite where I was like, I don't want to be alive, but if you guys are going to make me, these are all the cool things that I want to do. And that was my way of kind of coping with it and figuring out what to do with my life since I really didn't want to do anything with it. And you have this bucket list available for anyone to view, right? Yeah, I have a personal website. It's catsby.com. So catsby is kind of the stage name, if you will, of what I go through. And that's spelled K-A-T-Z-B-E. And I put it up there. Yeah, so you can see it and look at it if you like. One more thing that I want to ask you is that 
recently I saw that you're certified in mental health first aid in the United States. Congratulations. Thank you. Can you explain what this means? Yeah, so it's a formal training course, and you can think of mental health first aid as a sister course or very parallel to physical first aid. So if we step back and look at that physical first aid, you're not a doctor, and it's not your job to perform surgeries or fix somebody that has a lasting condition or a persistent condition. And so what they do with first aid is your job is you're probably the first responder if you need to use this first aid. So you're supposed to look and assess the risk and then figure out what might be going on and how you can help and how you can escalate. And it's the same thing for mental health first aid. So what they do is they focus on a couple different categories, which is depression and anxiety, psychosis, which is things like hallucinations and schizophrenia, and then also substance abuse disorders, where you notice somebody who's really relying on alcohol or illicit drugs or prescription drugs in a way that's not healthy. So you learn how to identify those situations, and then you learn how to either assess for risk such that these people are in need of help beyond me and escalate them to proper resources like a hospital or a doctor's appointment or a therapist's appointment, or if you assess that they're not at that risk level, get them past this particular bad bout that they're in right now, which involves listening to them empathetically and also encouraging them to see resources if you think that it could help them, but it's not absolutely medically necessary at this moment. What were some of the components for getting certified or where can people find information? About yeah, this? so they actually have their own website, which is mentalhealthfirstaid.org. And the components were going to a class. The one that I did was two-day. I think they do have one-day versions. And another component that you should be aware of is that they offer two versions, which is an adult version and a youth version. So they'll have different paths for helping adults who are in crisis versus youth like teenagers and kids that are in crisis. And the components were learning how to identify those different things. So what are the symptoms that might indicate that somebody's going through a crisis? And then they teach you in every case an actionable plan for helping those people. So the algorithm they use is ALGE, which is A-L-G-E-E. Now you're going to quiz me on what this stands for. (laughs) But the A is assess for risk of suicide and self-harm. L is listen without judgment. G is give information and reassurance. So information about what they might be going through and reassurance that like, hey, people go through this pretty regularly and it's okay and I'm here to help. And then the last two, both E's, both stand for encourage. And the first one is to encourage appropriate professional help, like I mentioned, getting connected to resources. And the second E is appropriate self-help, like learning how to take care of yourself and different things like that so that you can help yourself through this process as well. And who should consider getting this certification? Really, I think that everybody should. If I'm being a little bit idealistic, just like with first aid, it would be awesome if everybody knew how to handle bleeding or different injuries at a basic level. That said, most of the people in my course were professionals who are in care industries or health-related industries, like caregivers at nursing homes and stuff like that. So definitely those kind of people who have day-to-day jobs with people who are communities that need more support like the elderly or people living with disabilities and anybody else really that's interested in this space or may know someone or be living with a condition themselves. Well Bethan, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.